You are listening to Cursed Murphy's podcast. Our guest, Jerry Fish. Jerry Fish has been many things. A stadium rock god, a carnival barker and a showman, entrepreneur, label owner and band leader. He first made his mark touring the world and recording three albums with an emotional fish. And after years of hard graft, music business machinations and good and bad luck, he formed his own band and label, The Mudbug Club, released two platinum-selling albums, Be Yourself and The Beautiful Untrue, that combined roots music, torch songs, film atmospheres and brassy swagger. These days, the name Jerry Fish is synonymous with festivals, with carnival sideshow, with circus and theatre. I grew up in London, Jerry once said, but my family, my two great-grandmothers, I looked up the 1911 census and they were neighbours. I'm from the river. I'd say if you went back far enough, I'm just an amoeba that crawled out of the Liffey. This episode was produced with the support of Wexford Arts Department, Wexford County Council and Wexford Library. Jerry Fish, welcome to Cursed Murphy's podcast. Thank you very much. Make me sound very grand. <laughs> You're royalty at this stage. Royalty, yeah. Well, no, no, but be careful of your royalty. That's what the guillotine is for. Yeah, it's, not necessarily, <laughs> it's not necessarily compliment these days. No, it's not. I've never considered it. No, it's going to be... Uh, no, I like being from the feet on the ground. Where were you born, Jerry? I, I was born um, by the Liffey. I was born in Hollow Street Hospital. Um, my family are all from Ringsend, so... But when I was about one years old, my mother was basically living in London, but came home to have her first child. So my parents were living in London, came home, had the first child, and then went back to London a year later. Right. What did your dad do? Uh, he was a painter and decorator. And you came where in the family? First. First? First born. The rest of my siblings, were, I'm, I'm the eldest of six, were born in uh, England. So we were immigrants, basically. You had something of a split identity. I remember you once told me I grew up in England as an Irish kid and then I came to Ireland to become an English bastard. I think it was an Irish bastard, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I grew up in, this, in, the, in the 1960s and 1970s in London, yeah. which were infamous, inf, infamously uh, racist, you know, mm. uh, terrible racist. And not just Irish people, but the Irish were probably at the brunt of that... Um, Obviously, uh, with the no blacks, no dogs, and no Irish that my parents had kind of moved over to, so they, they'd face that racism. But, but the IRA bombings in the 70s, all, all the Irish kids were basically blamed on them, you know. So we kind of grew up with that, you know, thick paddy. So I was really looking forward to when we did, did decide to move home and had enough to kind of entering Irish society as a an Irish person, I thought they'd give me a gun and say, point it that way, you know? Yeah. Which, uh, and then I discovered how fractured this island is and how the first kids I hung around with were gypsies and uh, I thought all Irish children were the same, but they're not. And then, so, so I kind of encountered a lot of racism here. So I guess in my, I, you know, I left home around 16 or so, kind of like going, trying to find a place of my own, basically. And I'm still there. Funny enough. Was there a positive side to that in that, like you listen to any of your records, any of the Jerry Fish records, and there's 
many, many different kinds of music in there. I wonder, were you too young to be exposed to the multicultural aspect of what was going on in London, or did it have an effect on No, absolutely. I mean, I think your adversity is what makes you, and I think, like, for maybe in my teens, I was kind of a bit angry and kind of, you know, why me? Why did I go through that awful place and live in that awful place, go to those awful schools and deal with that racism? But know your enemy. You know, I got to know racism very, very well um, in my formative years. So, uh, and and the multiculturalism and the beauties of, I mean, I'm the generation uh, now in the UK that's kind of become the new Britain, if you like, or the new London, you know, kind of, you listen to the, I mean, I grew up with Cockneys and uh, my best friend was a Cockney and his parents had both been part of World War Two, And uh, the whole Cockney, uh, Pearly Kings and Queens and the pie and mash shops and all that stuff, you know. So I was immersed in that culture. Uh, then there was the, the the Windrush generation, the Jamaicans and the West Indians that were there. So now you listen to the Cockney accent and it's more it's mixed with a Jamaican patois. So yeah. it all became um, the melting pot. So I'm, I'm very glad to have experienced that particular time in uh, London's history, basically. Yeah, you grew up amongst accents in a time of accents. Well, we all spoke like that. We all we all talked like that in school, and then went back back to the mams, mammy. You know what I mean? So, I remember being on a road. Uh, my two aunts uh, were over visiting, and they asked me what bus they got to the Elephant Castle, and it was the one three three. So I, I I was with a bunch of mates, so I had to say either one three three or one three three. <laughs> And they're uh, quite stuck, but I, I, I ended up saying one tree tree, <coughs> which is the Jamaican accent as well, you know. So, yeah, accents were really uh, bandied around. I mean, the West Indian kids did the same. We all had Cockney accents in school and then went home. I think kids are kind of mimickers. That's what we do, you know, or even people, but children particularly. It's something that's not often remarked upon, but your spoken, your speaking voice, mm. your conversational voice, is in many ways as distinctive and as well known as your singing voice. If you listen to your voice over yeah. work and stuff like that, so I'm wondering how much of 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 the voice was a conscious creation. Like people who who grew up in small towns will often reject the small town accent mm. and assume an American one or a, or an English one or take on a different accent. Uh, you know, my daddy's a crooner. You know, so I have that kind of. I have a kind of deep voice anyway, but there is definitely a mix of London and Dublin in there. But my, my family are, we're dope stubs, you know what I mean? But yeah. like, uh, if so many people say they're from Dublin, you say, well, you're from Dublin Tala, that's in the mountains, do you know what I mean? We're from the River Liffey, do you know what I mean? The Dockers, and, and so uh, Dublin is actually, and a lot of people I, I know from the country that go to big cities, you know, I often tell them, look, cities are villages, do you know what I mean? It's, they're all just this collection of villages that have knitted together. And Ring's End is, is um, probably the last fishing village in, in Dublin, do you know? So it's a, still a very much a village. Stony Batter, the Liberties, they're all little to small places, you know, small towns, really. So Dublin, Dublin, to me, is still tiny. It's a tiny spot, you know? Uh, and I think, now I live on a mountaintop in there, uh, County Carlow, and I, I think I've become more of a dope consequently, you know, because I've distanced myself from it. 
What was the first memory of seeing something on the television or hearing something on the radio and and it opening a chink to another dimension for you? Um, I, I, that's probably been T-Rex, you know. I think Mark Boland kind of came on the um, telly. I remember being allowed to stay up late to watch the Silla Black show because Mark Boland was going to be on it. So probably people like Mark Boland and David Bowie, you know, appearing on TV would have kind of connected musically anyway or, or just just yeah I want to be that you know I want to do that I mean I wasn't a very handsome kid I was kind of very circular and uh, lots of freckles and my mother cut my hair with a bowl so I was the most <laughs> unlikely rock star you know there, ever, there would ever be but I just kind of always thought I was going to do that just always kind of thought yeah one day I'm going to do that and just never really I don't think I even made any effort just saw it you know there's a difference between a musician and a performer. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a difference even between a singer and a performer. And you've always been a performer as, as well as a, a musician or a singer. I don't think I realised that. I think um, certainly with an emotional fish, um, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a complex character anyway. So, and, and you know, um, you, you were talking about Daniel Johnson earlier. I think it's... Writing for me is a ther therapeutic thing, and so is performing. Um, so I think with an emotional fish, I certainly was was released maybe a lot of anger and, and, and lyrics and frustrations uh, and stuff. And when I got on stage, I was just overcome with this character, and I guess it's a bit of nervous and bravado. But certainly now, thirty odd years later, I've I've kind of started to see who that character is and what I can do with that, you know. More, more so maybe in the last 10 years even or less, you know, with, with, with small intimate theatre shows. There's a thing people are often surprised by how apparently extroverted performers like an Iggy or a Tom Waits or a David Johansson or whatever can be quite introverted as people. Yeah, I think it, I think you need that really. It, it, it's it's a you know I mean look the, if anyone was looking for any advice about stagecraft and the one thing that hits me every time is when you're on a stage you own that stage so you really have to own it you know there's no point in being there if you if you if you've only one foot on it or, or you think somebody else is better than you mm. on it. So to, to actually take that step onto the stage is, is, you know, backstage you can do a lot of panicking, you know. So, and I think, yeah, I am quite a shy person, actually. There's a shy nature there. I'm not afraid, uh, just terrified. You know? <clears throat> is there a trick? Is there a strategy? That you, like, how do you assert authority on a stage? Um, well, I, I guess I, my tool, and what I'm very lucky, is I actually love people. You know, I feel a great uh, uh, affinity, and well, obviously because I am a human being, but uh, just just a great love of people. I really love, um, I love humanity. I love what we're kind of all going through. Do you know what I mean? That we can all walk together. And maybe because I've I've grown up with such a divisive seen division so much division that when I'm on stage I can unite you know and I can see the power of 
what, what, what music and performance can do and words. I'd say if there's, um, if there's a similarity between Jared Whelan, who sang with an emotional fish, uh, and Jerry Fish, Mm. It's that. I remember seeing you in the bridge in Waterford one night with an emotional fish and I think you were swinging out of the balcony or something yeah and I like to climb yeah. there's a, <laughs> and you and then I saw you like in the Heritage Park as Jerry Fish and you were actually more spent more time off the stage than on it so I would say there's a sense of you're always trying to break the fourth wall there is that and there's also this kind of um I mean, I was born on Bastille Day as well, so like uh, introducing me as royalty was was a, a mistake. But uh, it, that kind of elevated position that a, that a performer has, I much prefer uh, a closer proximity to. Hence, the love of circus, probably. You know, I much prefer. Like I love, I like those theatres where you're actually everybody else is higher than you are. You know, I find I always found it a bit weird being on the box above everybody else. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a punk sensibility as well. It probably it? is, yeah. Icky, you know, kind of. I guess I saw performers like Icky, and it's like, now, nah, okay, I really want to do that. Do you take a bad gig personally? I try not to have them, to be honest. You know, I mean, <laughs> you you learn you learn from. Them. Yes, I do. Yes, you know, I mean for the. The few that I can recall, yeah, it will just live with me forever. I mean, I kind of, just when you said it, I just thought of one, which it's more when it's not your fault. I remember having a set cut at a festival because some big <coughs> name band wanted us, you know, wanted us off on time or whatever, and we'd gone on late. And that was, I still haven't forgiven that band. <laughs> So I think, I think, yeah, I do like to give everything I have, you know, that's important. Talk to me about the addiction of performance. I mean, it, mm. it should really be recognised as a clinical addiction. No? I, I'm starting to realise that now in the, in the winter depths. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of often I kind of wonder what's wrong with me. Then I go out and do a gig and I was going, that's what I needed, a round of applause, you know. Mm. So I, I think, uh, yeah, and I've toured toured the world and gone on tours for like, you know, maybe four or five months and you come home and there's something really missing, you know, you you wish you could. I was thinking inventing a toaster that could uh, give you a round of applause and <laughs> toast pops up. But yeah, there is, there is that, yeah, I think, I think you're right, there is an addiction to it. What's your feeling when you look back at That sort of uh, that hyper speeded up journey that was the four or five years of an emotional fish, those three albums. I, I, it's a big question. I know. Let me <clears throat> let me sharpen it down mm, a bit. First no. of all, it was it was a condensed experience of everything good and bad about the music business at that time. Yes, I would imagine. I think the problem was I, um, for me, like I say, it was just a really. Uh, I wrote songs from a therapeutic thing. Thing I kind of, you know, my, my heroes were Iggy and stuff, so I was a, you know, 
most people would see me go, you know, as, as uh, Glenn Hansard and Mick Christopher came to one of my gigs and they were like, he's the most angriest person I've ever seen in my life, you know. So I, there was a lot of energy off the performances, but it was real, you know. I wasn't actually thinking about careers or or anything else. It was, it was a, they were punk, you know, performances. I mean, when I signed a record, uh, to a record label, I thought a record label was the piece of paper that stuck on the middle of a, rec a piece of vinyl. I had no idea that there were different companies running this, this whole thing. I had no idea about the business of, of music. I really didn't. I just thought, all of a sudden you had loads of money in your bank account or something, you know. Um, so it was difficult to manage seeing it maybe being mismanaged and, and, you know, I think the label we signed to, which, which which just happens all the time, really didn't know anything about how to market uh, an emotional fish, you know. Um, they did know that U2 were the biggest band in the world and if they could get another one of them, they'd be laughing. And so there was a lot of that, you know, so that that was very frustrating, yeah. Well, that was an epidemic at the time. If you were, a, mm. if you were a, an Irish, Irish rock band, yeah, and 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 also encountering, uh, hate to say it, but I grew up there, encountering the racism of 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 the British media and stuff. You know, so we signed a big, um, uh, we signed a deal. We were the first band to tour, to a sponsored tour with Radio One, in the UK, but we were an Irish band, so. You know, and, and the BBC is obviously funded by UK taxpayers. So there was just such a furore, kind of, and, and the enemy, kind of, um, you know, we were the most hated band they had on the, you know, they, I think they had a poster in their office, the band to hate this week and every week, you know. So, you know, the result of this politics, I think what, what it resulted in me being doing a gig with them in Milton Keynes and... Uh, I don't know how to say, but <clears throat> I basically uh, put the most profanities ever heard on live radio in within a minute or two, you know, because <clears throat> it was just appalling, you know, that it was a band there in the middle of it. These days, now they all walk together, but we were the first, you know. So that that did that blew up in England, was difficult, but we were flying in 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 America. English uh, audiences were amazing, you know, travelled all over Britain, the most amazing audiences, but the whole industry really didn't want, they, they, they never took to U2 either, they didn't want us in there, you know. The brainy route was always straight to the States for an Irish rock band. Back it it wasn't the brainy route, it was the only route, right. you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really anything that would break... Uh, you know, you, 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 they paid attention when you hit the States. And we're comfortable in the States where a lot of British bands wouldn't be as comfortable as we are, you know. It seemed kind of prophetic, though, because you were signed by Warner Brothers um, in the States anyway. It was Amit Erdogan was... was Again, you're into more politics, because Amit, Amit signed us to Atlantic, which was amazing. Atlantic, okay. Yeah, so Amit Erdogan signed us to... to but, but because we were an English because we were signed to the English label, the Americans only got a percentage of, of the sales. You know, it, to be honest, it had nothing to do with me. It, it never, you know, it was just confusing. It clears the fog somewhat now. Does it? Because 
what a lot of people over here couldn't figure out is Amit Ertegun is the guy who signed Led Zeppelin, who, you know, discovered... Give Ray Charles a sound. Aretha yeah. Franklin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing. And you're thinking, well, this guy's obviously got... Uh, got great taste and with th- that kind of support at that high level in a in a record label how could it fail but now as you delineate the the strata of the of the politics the politics yeah i mean, I mean the the um amit didn't just amit didn't just sign in motion fish he courted us you know he brought us to uh, turkey and we were in his home in turkey so i spent a lot of time and a lot of wonderful time with amit Ertigan which I, I didn't really know who he was at the time, but like you say, you know, he gave Ray Charles a sound. He, he um, uh, you know, worked with Bobby Darren and made, made massive hits. Because his, him and himself and his brother Nashui kind of, uh, you know, just created the, 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 the music industry around Atlantic Records. So it was great to hang out with him, and I think his belief in me when I dropped out of music after the whole emotional fish thing, I'd really had enough. That belief kind of made me think, well, I must have been good, or I must be good if someone like that can, you know, kind of encourage me. He told you once that he could hear you singing God Bless the Child. Yeah, God... I think that's really what Amit saw in me, and, you know, I mean, the one thing that really... The other thing that really struck me was that when I finally got a record deal and became a, a rock star... Um, was I was the only working class rock star in the world because I couldn't find another one. It was a very lonely place to be. All the journalists were middle class and college educated and, and, and as were many of the musicians. So I really found it quite a lonely place. I, 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 kind of, I, I swallowed all the lies of bands saying they're from the roughest part of the city and, the, and, and you know, went there, made their way through it. Because I did grow up in, in, in ghettos and kind of working class areas. So I felt kind of betrayed by that, you know, to be honest. He recently lost an old comrade, Martin Murphy, who's, mm. a, who's the drummer in, a, in An Emotional Fish. And, and I was thinking, because you, you released a version of Blue, and I'd heard Celebrate again. And even some of the lines in Celebrate are still... Uh, you know, histories and insanity intruding on the scene, or beauty does what beauty does best. It's beautiful. There are these a- almost aphorisms. Those yeah. songs are still good. Yeah, I think I think I still am very interested in propaganda and what we're sold to believe. You know, and the, and the whole fear machine. You know, I think I still. So I'm still kind of. I can hear it and celebrate. I'm still true to that thing. You know, I don't think the world. I think the world is a beautiful place. I really do. I just think there are people telling you other things, you know, and creating a fear around us. I mean, at, I, at my show, uh, I often say to people, you know, uh, that more than likely a stranger is going to save your life, so don't be afraid of, of strangers, you know, whether it be the ambulance man or whatever. Mm. Then again, if you're going to be murdered, it's probably something you know very, very well. You know? <laughs> and that's the truth of the matter. So, you know, I mean, I like breaking down these whole, you know, I mean, every culture tells you to embrace the stranger, you know, and kind of like that, find whether it's 
Buddha or Jesus or whatever in, in somebody else, you know. Except the American dream, which says get a house and seclude yourself on top of the hill. Yeah, but have you been to America? Have you really seen it? Their propaganda, their propaganda machine is broken. You know, anyone that's been there can see the amount of poverty that's going on over there. It's, it's very sad. Is it strange to be a musician at an age where you're losing contemporaries and not older peers? Um, I, I, th I think this is also something that affected my life, that I lost my best friend when, I, when, I, when he was 19. And actually something very peculiar happened then to me. It was, I realised, oh, we're like, we're not here forever. We are going to kind of disappear. I remember being on a bus in Dublin and uh, he, I grew up with him in London. He was uh, the Cockney kid I was telling you about. And I just saw this massive rainbow um, and I thought, wow, it's like he's everywhere now. So I kind of really feel kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, I, I, I know that we're not here forever. So losing... Uh, like Martin in particular, of course, it's, it's it's very sad, you know. And losing, yeah, we, we lose, so many people die all the time, you know. It, again, it's like I wish we were more educated, like native people were about death, you know, and about kind of uh, about losing each other, you know. I think. Um, we're missing something there too, you know. And and the, the other thing is we die at all ages. Do you know, children die. You know, it's not just old people that die, you know. So, uh, yeah, it is, it's very sad to lose kind of peers, like you say. And uh, but, but, you know, kind of like look after each other. Look at, that's, that's my thing, just look after everybody. And, you know, running the stage, Electric Picnic for the last like seven or eight years, you know, I'm very in touch with a lot of young bands, a lot of new bands, you know. I mean, look at Mick Christopher we lost, you know, kind of like, it's, it, you know, and it's just stupid things happen, you know, and, and all of a sudden we're gone. Does the nature of it change, do you think, as you get older? How you deal with losses or, or griefs? Do you become more philosophical about it or does it just take more paint off you? No, I think I've always been, I've always been a dreamer, so it's, I've always been kind of philosophical about it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, my problem is I need to grow up. <laughs> it's not really as I get older. I just kind of wish I would grow up sometimes. You know, I just I'm I I don't grow up really. I feel. Um, I mean, obviously, the wonderful thing about being older is you can you do have a chance to kind of learn from your mistakes and, and live your life better hopefully from you know I mean I love that I run my own business now as an artist and as a musician you know that's probably I wouldn't have been able to do that without the experience I've had you know and appreciating the wonderful uh, technology that's out there to help us do that there's something wonderful though about old people who are still anarchic you know in some sense <laughs> there's but, something wonderful about young people who are still anarchic I mean, they're, they're, probably the, they're probably more in the minority than the old people, you know. Yeah. But the 
there's that awful thing that comes with age that hits some people as a sort of anxiety or a fretting or, you know. Again, I think it's a societal pressure too, you know. It's, right. it's like, um, you know, or maybe, you know, the fact that we turn grey as you're trying to blend into the background or something, you know. It's, it's just, uh, I kind of feel a need to really ignore it, you know. I, th I think we all do. I think ageism is, a, is another kind of um, enemy, you know. Including children, you know. I mean, the, the, teenagers are ignored in so many capacities. It's, it's ridiculous, you know. So I think, I mean, look what Greta Thunberg has just done, you know. I think, you know, we, we do need to kind of change a lot of things, you know. It's not just old people, it's young people as well we're ignoring, you know. How did you make the transition then? There was a, there was a bit of an interlude between <clears throat> the end of an emotional fish. Sloper was made on your own budget, mm -hmm. um, maybe your strongest set of songs um, recorded on the, on the lowest budget. There was, was there... Um, was there a sense of being bereft or disappointed? Tell me about how the end of an emotional fish became Jerry Fish and what went on in that period where you weren't on a stage. Well, I think the end of an emotional fish was a bit like falling down the stairs and then kind of ending up with, with a foot in a bucket of paint and kind of like it was <coughs> a very messy ending. You know, we ended up in court with a record label. So we really just packed it in. It was like, I, I really don't want to do this anymore, you know. Um, didn't like the attention. I don't know if I ever really did like the attention. So it was really packed it in, and I was happy enough to pack it in, to be honest. Um, but then I guess that you know, after the debts were eventually paid, and kind of which I did off my own back. I guess my big thing, which I hate to hear an artist say, is um, you know I'm no good at business. I'm no good at business. Artists and business. Uh, maybe that's why I was such a fan of Andy Warhol. Um, whereas I thought, well, if I can paint a house and if I can tell someone how much it costs for me to paint a house, why can't I, you know, change that into how much it would cost to sing them a song or whatever mm. or, or, or create a performance for them? So I kind of switched, once I'd switched my brain over to kind of I can make a business of this, um, well, well my, I've kind of skipped a lot. I mean, there, there was definitely, there was a divorce, there was all sorts of falling asunder, asunder before I kind of, uh, well, actually, my daughter was born and then I looked, looked her in the eye and thought, oh dear, I don't really want to be coming back from a building site and telling her, you know, I used to be, you know, dusting off the old records, you know, I used to be a bit of a rocker. So I really wanted to get back into, I knew the desire was there, but I really wanted to have control of the business. Artistic control is financial control. That's what I left with my experience with an emotional fish. So, um, and that's really what I'm at now. You know, that's what I try and do. And I don't think it's about, I think we value, um, we put value on, on material things more than we do our lives. You know, how are you doing? Well, you know, your house is a bit of a shabby or your car's a bit shabby. You mustn't be doing too well. Do you know, it's more about I, I'm, I'm healthily doing exactly what I love to do every day. 
you know, that's that's what I endeavour to do, and that's that's pretty much what I do. So it was really, <laughs> I've made a long, very long answer there, have I? It was a long and convoluted <coughs> period, yeah. as I recall, and, and it was interesting because there was a growing community of musicians and bands blossoming around mm. at the time, and you were kind of absent from that, but then you you somehow wended your way back in with the first record. Well, I, I, yeah, but the thing, the thing at the end of An Emotional Fish, basically, Kurt Cobain died and Westlife came along, so it was like I was unemployed anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then this dance, dance thing and the whole ecstasy, you know, four on the floor was a, this shittiest period of music, so it didn't seem uh, anywhere to be involved then. And, that, and then, like you say, that kind of died off a bit. And um, a lot of singers, songwriters, stuff. You know, Glenn started playing guitar more, and people started to get, there seemed to be more activity, and people were releasing their own records. And I remember advising somebody, uh, Juliet Turner, actually, and the manager to release their own album. You know, don't include a record label. And I gave them the whole business plan. They went ahead and did it, and sold like tens of thousands of records. And I went back to painting a house. You know, and kind of thought. Maybe I should do that myself, you know? So, you know, I mean, it was timing. It's, it's, it, timing is a thing too, you know? Was there, not to dwell on the negative, but was there ever a bleak moment? There was there ever a moment where you're sitting, standing in the middle of a bunch of paint pots going, I used to be somebody? Uh, no, I mean, my, I mean, I walked with my father, so I remember uh, painting a railing uh, outside Black Rock, near Black Rock somewhere, and him singing, That's Life. Uh, uh, to me, and kind of, you know, I guess it's a song I can relate to. I think being up and down is really, you know, if anything, character building, you know, and it's been, um, I, I mean, it is a roller coaster anyway. It, that's that's how it works. If you think it's just one big rise to the top, you know. And I've also see fa seen fame kind of wreck people, you know, and really wreck their lives. So I don't really, I approach it with caution. Wreck their lives how? Uh, you know, um, incidentals. I remember being in 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 uh, God, it's a confession box. But I remember being in Camden after Emotional Fish's second album, and I remember wanting to kill my manager and my A and R person, and I was probably about to. You know, it was late in the night, and uh, I was calmed down by a gypsy woman, I believe, and she said, "What's what's your problem?" I said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna kill those." Two guys there, and she, and she said, uh, "They're incidentals because of your talent. You will have them, you know, and that's true. You will always have people around you if your talent, you know, that will want to take a piece of it or make financial gain of it. And uh, they, you know, look, they've got a lot better now. But um, that's the fact. So the more famous you are, the more of those people you have around you, you know." And that's, they can be quite nasty people, you know. It reminds me in the Gospels where it says the poor you will always have with you. <laughs> the booking agent you will always have with you. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's not it just, you know, there are kind of a lot of sharks out there, you know. How did it happen that... Um, it looked from the outside like you abandoned the standard model of a recorded album hmm. in favour of a much more centuries-old template for entertainment, which was carnival, sideshow, spectacle, 
community? Uh, yeah, I guess... Um, well, I guess when I started the whole Jerry Fish thing, I went into a basement and just recorded whatever I wanted to do. I didn't even really think of genre or anything. And then when I, when I released it, uh, no, everybody listened to it and went, what the hell is that? It was just so kind of book the zeitgeist, if you like. It was just was nothing like that was happening, you know? And I got lucky that became a hit. Uh, so I guess I knew following my gut is the best thing to do, do you know, and doing what you love doing. And uh, I guess relying on serendipity as well. So then when it, after the second Jerry Fish and the Mudbug Club album, I did a live album in between of Spiegel Tent, I just thought I need to change this again. I need to kind of, uh, I just need to change it. And what do you want to do? What? Do you, and I've always loved circus. I've just, I am, you know, two two things, kind of a, a punter at the circus and a beach bum, you know what I mean? So like, uh, I just fell in, I've just thought, well, I'm gonna form my own circus, you know? So actually, <laughs> I just, I released, actually it was the release of the second Jerry Fish and the Mudbug Club album, I thought. I'll do the launch with the circus because I remember um, forming that circus and it was six people and we were in the pub pub next door and I was going God that was really quite easy to do you know I mean I've, I've always been in with that fraternity anyway so I remember the clown uh, left and he had the beep beep uh, honk honk on his phone as he walked out the door I thought yes I've got a circus you know and you know, I've, I've had a lot of friends in that and, and just now I guess I'm steeped in that fraternity. And what a fraternity. The difference between a musician and, and a street performer or, or a carnival circus is they just want to give, give, give. Where a musician will uh, land at a gig and say, you know, where's the sandwiches? Where's this? Where's that? You know? Mm. Whereas they just want to give, give, give. So I'm very... Uh, I feel very privileged to be part of that community and and to being, I guess, helping that community grow and become stronger. Because I know in the last 10 years since I've done it, it's just got stronger and stronger and stronger, you know. There's a sense in which you're, you might be seen as a director of sorts. Even the way you pick partners for duets, you mm. know, Imelda May or Carol Kyo or May Kay, who you did the yeah, the Daniel lovely. Johnson song with recently. How do you know it's the right person to sing with or work with? I do. I guess another thing that I was stumbled upon is calling myself Jerry Fish because then you've got a character to play with. It's not really you. So I, he, he's kind of like, so I really put Jerry in with whoever. And it's more kind of... Uh, um, Wallace Bird sang with me on True Love Will Find You in the End. Then May Kay is, did Blue with me. May Kay did a live version with me. May Kay, I love with two punk rockers. I think I'm going to do a lot more with May Kay. I just think collaboration is... is um, two are better than one, you know, and I love duet. I love the duet thing. So how do I know they work? No, I just know, you know. I mean, Maria Doyle Kennedy was one of the first as well on, on, on aeroplanes with Sloper. I just love that duet format, you know. Did you ever spot someone on a record or on television and think, yeah, them, and then find out that it didn't work at all? 
Um, That's an unfair question. We couldn't even broadcast it. No, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have. I don't know if, I, if that's how I go around. Um, uh, I often would hear people, um, but it's really about the kind of when, when you're in, in the proximity of the person, it's more kind of that feeling. Yeah. You know, because I think uh, they say song and dance are original prayer, so there has to be a spiritual connection to it. You know, you have to, you have to kind of have something in common to walk. I think on record on a recording. Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. Do you know, that's say no more. Yeah. Some years ago. Um, you played me some recordings of a project that you'd embarked upon. You ran into Michael Madsen, the actor, mm. who m many people would know from Reservoir Dogs or Kill Bill. Um, and you found out that he was a poet, or he, you knew that he wrote poetry, or he showed you some of his poetry. And somehow this project came along that you began to travel around recording really interesting people reading his poetry. And this included people like Iggy Pop and David Carradine and Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Um, tell me about the experience of recording those people. I, I think this, I probably will put this in a podcast of my own or something. But it's it 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 started with a phone call from my ex-wife, and I thought, oh, what you know, what is this? <coughs> and and she gave me Michael. Do you mind if I give your number to Michael Madsen and uh? I thought, what is this, you know? So uh, anyway, Michael Madsen got my number. He rang me, and uh, he f he'd found uh, a, a Jerry Fish uh, album, crazy about my music. I write poetry, uh, you know. I'd love, I'd love to make a record. And he was filming down in Cork. So like, I, I'm a seize the day kind of guy. I'm a big fan of his. Um, big fan of Quinton's kind of Tarantino and. All his films, you know, Reservoir Dogs, and their Pulp Fiction, you know, with Broner, our Broner, and um, so I just brought my recording gear. I, I arranged to meet him in Cork, but I brought a home recording studio with me. I said, right, let's do this if we're going to do it, and uh, he spent two days with him recording his poetry, and then lived with that for maybe a year. Thing, right? I needed some kind of contract got a contract drawn up and then I came up with a plan rather than just having the one voice I mean it's a lot like Charles Bukowski so um, it was it was strange stuff but but uh, it came up with this list of all the people Harry Dean Stanton you know uh, all, the, all these amazing characters uh, that I wanted that are maybe disappearing David Carradine I think was uh, his suggestion but then the next trip thing, I know I just flew over to LA and started recording people. Um, I spent I've the last uh, audio recordings of David Carradine, spent a whole day in the studio with him, you know. And it was just an insight into their um, world, I guess they're cracked actors, you know. Mm. Uh, then I recorded Iggy doing it and uh, so it was in a way it was a great it was a great little project I gave myself spent it spent um, uh, a day with Harry Dean Stanton in his house in up in Beverly Hills um, how does one direct these people I, I, 
didn't really. Do you know what I mean? They're actors. They just do their thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it, it was pre kind of iPhone or having any film equipment. So it was kind of, um, I didn't really, all I captured was the audio. But I, but I learned a lot about poetry uh, more that, it's, that it shouldn't be read, really. It should be listened to, you know? I think, I think that's, uh, you know, when you hear someone reading it, it just changes the whole poem, so. But he, he's, he's, I mean, he is, I mean, everybody knows Michael Madsen is a crazy, crazy guy. So I, I kind of inherited this kind of mental big brother, basically, for a number of years. Well, anything ever happened to those recordings? Uh, I, get, I remember when I was in L.A. recording it and some a friend of mine saying to me, you do realise this is all about you, you know what I mean? You should, someone should be following you around and filming you because it's kind of what was happening in my head as well, you know? So, I, I mean, the thing is, what do you do with audio now? So, I, I, I think I should. I think, uh, you know, the idea was to make CDs... But, uh, you know, that's a thing of the past now. So it's, it's, it's difficult kind of to know what to do with them. And I think, you know, it really shows two sides of, of the acting profession and Hollywood as well. Do you know how lonely it is? How hard it is? How, how kind of uh, pathetic a lot of it is? You know, really kind of it, it lets you into the cracks, you know, and I really like that. I mean, look at Carradine how he died even you know it's such a seedy kind of underworld really that is is disappearing you know we're, I think we're kind of now re-entering that clean Hollywood machine I often think that maybe the hardest thing about being an actor is if you're not a writer or a filmmaker as well no matter how great your talent you're completely reliant on somebody else you're completely reliant on a role or a, or being cast. You know, you're in a passive role. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know how they do it, to be honest, you know. I mean, if... if I, I, I probably... I, I've got a little book I write all my rejections in, do you know what I mean? And weep at night <laughs> reading it, you know. I can't... I don't like being rejected. So I don't... I don't have no desire to get into the acting profession. I don't know how they do that. Do you still use that as fuel? Uh, which one? Just remembering rejections. Uh, no, actually, I don't. I try not to remember uh, rejections. No, just acting. I just think you really want a tough skin to do that, you know. Final question is, what's the work you're most proud of? Um, I think what I'm doing now is... Uh, this podcast is probably. <laughs> I, actually, I remember. I remember um, the, the stage I have. The Jerry Fisher Electric Side Show and Electric Picnic has, like, physically almost broken me physically and mentally. I remember uh, driving a van up there, sleeping in the van, building the stages. You know, while I'm trying to get accreditation sorted. Um, this was a number of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, lying in the van, completely broken, and realising, wow, you've just, you know, as a kid I was a beach bum. That was, that was a, love, a love of my life. Um, so, you know, the, here I am sleeping in a van. 
I, you know, I worked on, on building sites as, at my youth, so building is kind of second nature to me. And now I'm kind of performing and, and putting bands together. So I'm using every skill I have in my life mm-hmm. doing this one thing. And, and um, the other thing that's been amazing is the fraternity, like I say, that I've created, the amount of friends, uh, new friends I have now through doing um, the festival circuit stuff and the, the Jerry Fish Electric Sideshow. And now I'm in the process of, of creating Fishtown for Electric Picnic. So, um, you know, that the Daniel Johnson project I just took on uh, for his manager, Tom Gimbel, so I guess just projects. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm enjoying the journey. That's that's really, that's that's that, that's to me the important thing. So no, I'm just guess I'm proud of, you know, I've got four kids. I've still got a lot of work to do, you know. So uh, yeah, I'm just proud to be. I'm proud of my fingers, my toes. You know, I'm, I'm I can breathe, I can stand up. I'm I'm, I'm proud that I'm still happy. You got life. I got life, yeah. Yeah. Jerry Fish, thank you for visiting with Cursed Murphy's podcast. Thank you.